0: Thank you. to another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic creator and host of Behind the Lens. Where we go, behind the lens, below the line, with the movers, the shakers, the film and TV makers. And we talk to the producers, the writers, the directors, the actors, the cinematographers, the costume designers, the production designers, the film editors, the sound editors, sound mixers, composers, lyricists, authors, you name it, we talk to them uh so welcome welcome to this week this week as a reminder tcm film festival starts thursday in hollywood um there are still passes and tickets available single tickets are available for certain movies uh and i can't encourage you enough it's a festival if you're in la you definitely want to check it out go to tcm.com slash festival you can get the whole lineup um uh, A new announcement came down about the festival this week that Steven Spielberg will also be introducing a brand-new 4K restoration of Giant starring Rock Hudson and Elizabeth Taylor. So that'll be a real treat for moviegoers at the festival to uh, hear from Steven Spielberg, not only if you're lucky enough to attend the opening night screening, uh, which is E.T., which he'll be there with the cast for that, but also for this uh, special restoration screening of Giant. So, I love today's show. Um, I love today's show. At the midpoint of the show, a very special filmmaker is joining us, Tim McGrath. Uh, This is his filmmaking debut, Surviving Theater 9. Tim is one of the survivors of the Aurora movie theater, the Dark Knight Rises massacre. Um, what he has done is really interesting. It's a very, this is a very powerful film, uh, and he took the experiences of himself, of another theater goer, and a survivor from the Columbine school massacre years prior and has crafted a narrative film that basically is addressing dealing with what happens after for the victims, the collateral damage of their families, of survivors, that the theory of survivor's guilt, and also how the public perception, how these individuals are treated, uh, and comments and hurtful things that are said, and... With the volume of mass shootings that we have, we just had three more this weekend, over Easter weekend. Um, it has been nonstop. I think this is a movie that can benefit all of us uh, from a public perspective, especially that part of the film addresses mental edu- mental health education. Not just mental health, but mental health education. And that comes with educating all of us about dealing, accepting, helping. So I can't wait for Tim to join us at the midpoint of the show. But first, we're going to kick off with, it's a spy thriller that I love, Agent Game. Um, it has an incredible cast, Mel Gibson, Dermot Mulroney, Jason Isaacs. Katie Cassidy, Adan Canto, Reese Caro, Barkad Abdi, and Annie uh, Ilonza. Um, get Mel Gibson, of course, he's shady from the start. Mel has been giving us some of the best performances uh, this year, the films that have been coming out. Dangerous with Scott Eastwood. Uh, then we just had Last Looks, which is one of the most priceless, cheeky performances. Mel has ever done uh, Dermot Mulroney is this is one of the strongest performances of his career and Katie Cassidy just knocks it out of the park as a black ops operative but the premise of Agent Game is it's a spy thriller Gibson's character of Harris is a CIA interrogator uh, for a black an agency black site uh, or no Harris no, is Dermot, Dermot's character I'm reading too many things at one time here, people. Dermot's character of Harris, he's an interrogator at the agent, at the Black Ops site. And something goes wrong. And he's basically the scapegoat for this... It, it's not even just a spy thriller, but this, as my grandmother would have said, this shystery actions that are happening. And we slowly meet... Through a nonlinear construct, we meet the various players, our three operatives, who get brought in by Mel Gibson's character of Olsen, a senior intelligence officer. And nobody knows each other. There is great mistrust. There's ambiguity as to whose side of the fence people are on. It's really interesting. It's what I love to call a pay-attention film. Uh, But the strong suit of Grant Johnson as a director... Is he develops a visual structure that supports this non linear style of storytelling and it builds mystery and intrigue as we're trying to find out who's playing who? It's a guessing game. In one moment, you think this one is on the wrong side of the fence, on the other, another moment, you think somebody else is. There are some surprises in here. The editing, Charlie Porter's editing, is excellent. Dave Cruda's cinematography is really beautifully done. There's a great visual grammar that captures the cloak-and-dagger feeling of the film. Uh, It's also very metaphoric. But what it does, especially Porter's editing, we really get to focus in on each one of our operatives in particular and learn about them before they are thrust together. Because once they all come together... It gets really, really interesting, and that takes up the last half of the film. It is out now. It is well worth seeing. It's on digital. It's on uh, cable. It's on VOD. Even Spectrum has it. Um, I highly recommend it, but bear in mind, it is a pay-attention cat-and-mouse action thriller. Uh And right now, you're going to hear my exclusive interview with director Grant Johnson. The script was by Tyler Coney and Mike Langer. And uh, without any further ado, let's take a listen to Grant. Hi, Grant.
1: Hey, Debbie. How's it going?
0: It is going fine. Grant, you had me spellbound. My first question is, when do I get a sequel? This is ending is killer it is a perfect setup i already want a sequel i was so invested in this it's, film I this uh, it's,
1: it's a great question um it's you know we always think we have the opportunity to set up a sequel and you know we might as well and we always had the idea of revealing at the end that mel actually answers to someone else
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, And when we met with Mel when he got
1: to Georgia and we talked about the final scene with him, he actually kind of teed up to us what a sequel might entail, which was (laughs) subverting my expectations and Tyler's expectations, but really, really smart. Um, You know, I hope this movie does well, um, and it would be really interesting if we did a sequel. I think if we did, I'd I'd want to kind of up it across the board, Uh, you know, more action, You know, there is one moment in this movie that I really thought could have used a car chase scene, and that was when our heroes get away from the sort of crime scene. Yes. um, And are are going to the airport. And I just think with a bulkier budget, that's something that would have been the first thing to go in was a good car chase there, Mm -hmm. you know, being chased by Belgian uh, police cops and uh, cars. Um, So we'll see. Um, I think that it would be really interesting to do that.
0: Yeah, and I think the car chase, that was one thing I was missing here because you've got action pumping on so many levels. You've got a lot of man-on-man combat. You've got a lot of pyrotechnics and explosions. You've got great firefights happening. You have intimate firefights. Two bullets to the head, you're gone. But yeah, we were missing a car chase. So, yeah, I agree with you. That would be a great addition with a sequel. But this whole story the entire thing. It's a riveting thriller. It's cat and mouse. You build the anticipation and tension so well. It's like a chess game um, with constant checks in, uh, in play. We got pawns falling, knights falling, queens keep moving, someone's protecting the king in the castle. Who is the king? It's a very much a pay attention movie, but it's a fun pay attention movie. And the intrigue is spectacular.
1: I I really appreciate it, yeah. You know, I do view these things, um, this movie and the characters as chess pieces. um, And obviously you think the whole time that Mel's character Olsen is the queen, um, so to speak. And at the end we realize it's just not. He's probably, you know, a third-ranking official. You know, he's calling someone above him who we can interpret just based off the visuals and sounds of where that person is living that you know they are senior
2: to Nell's character yeah and you know in an ensemble movie you have to make it feel that every character is individualized and serves his or her
1: own purpose uh too many characters in ensemble movies blend together a little bit of redundancy so what was important here was to in the script individualize the characters cast people who are you know had their own you know their own uh, sort of way of acting and their own way of interpreting things. Uh, I think Reese Coiro as Reese is a really good example of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that Katie Cassie as Miller is a good example of that. Um, and then you give them the backstories they need to have, and you focus on them individually, and it really will become clear exactly what their role is on the chessboard. And I think you know here you realize that you have Olsen at the top, you have Visser under him. Then you have Bill and Harris, you know, under them,
2: Mm -hmm. and
1: way, way, way down under Olsen is Kavinsky, Miller, and Reese. And then, of course, you have Omar somewhere in there, Barcod's character. But what was a really important moment for me to add into the screenplay, like I did, was towards the end when Disser calls Olsen during the firefight, kind of looking for backup, looking for help. And she calls him, and he doesn't answer. (laughs) and that's she has this moment of realization that washes over her face of realizing she's been played just like everybody else that she's a chess piece just like everybody else whereas she's convinced herself for the past you know few months or a few years of her career with Olsen that she was special and she realizes she's just been played and she's just as worthless to him as everyone else um so the idea of chess pieces was um really important and Maybe that moves us into uh, a, a chess, a famous chess scene in Harry
2: Potter and therefore Jason Isaacs, who yes, <laughs> I think does a magnificent job of playing
1: a person who is a chess piece, but also has a lot of free will. Of course, mm-hmm. Most characters in this movie don't have much free will because they do follow orders. Whereas he's senior enough to know that his gut is probably better than some of the orders he's going to be given. But mm-hmm. at the same time, he does sort of honor his uh, his ranking and that Olson outranks them and you know on their call he sort of just accepts but is telling him despite that he doesn't want
0: to. What I love about Jason's character of Bill, and I think it's so key here, he and Mel Olson and Bill both represent the older the older school Yeah. Of spying of the spy world. And then you've got Miller, Kavinsky and Reese, the young and this are the younger generation. Visser thinks she knows more than anybody, and she's indispensable. Miller, Kavinsky, and Reese have been pitted against each other by Visser and Olsen, essentially. But then you've got Bill, who is very old school and still has a code of ethics and a code of morals. That, luckily, we do see that transfer to Harris, because Dermot plays his role so well. I think this is one of Dermot's best performances in his career because at first you're not quite sure, and this is kudos to David, your cameraman, your, your DP, because you've got some great close-ups during the interrogation scenes where you're cutting back and forth, and especially when Visser goes into Omar and cutting between Harris's face, Bill's face, the monitors, going back into the interrogation room, and you see the looks that Dermot brings, And you're very suspect. Does he know what's, is something up? Is he on the same page with Bill? Is he really going along with Visser's idea? It's really interesting. And then to see how it plays out and what he does, he picks up that mantle of morals and ethics and what's right. And that's something that really stands out in this film, Grant. And you've done such an amazing job with that. Absolutely amazing.
1: Really
0: appreciate it. I'm so curious, you know, because this is essentially nonlinear. I love the structure that as we go back in time and we meet each one of our people as they're getting hired. So we're essentially getting some backstory here as to what they thought they were stepping into. And then to watch these transitions so that we're essentially going backwards before everybody gets on the same page. We, you know, we keep going back, we come to the present, we go back to when this one was hired, and then finally everybody gets on the same page in the plane. How challenging was that for you in working with your editor, with Charlie Porter, in finding that balance? Because that's precarious.
1: Yeah, you know, it's, so it, what was really a fundamental challenge and question of this movie, all the way back to the screenplay stage, was It's hard to develop characters in a movie that have characters who are not allowed to divulge information about themselves, right? You know, you can't have our heroes talking about their history and their background openly because people on such a mission would never do that. They wouldn't even be allowed to do that. But I was concerned that them getting to know each other on the plane would be too late in the game to get to know one another. Um, And we, at that point, will have not cared enough and we will have not had a quick buy-in so I challenged Tyler and myself and my editor when we were in prep to figure out ways to develop our characters prior to them really getting to know each other on the plane and what we decided was that they could all make hints about their you know their backgrounds their true selves to one another even if the other characters weren't really aware that they were being given a nugget a great example is you know, Katie, uh, who plays Miller, when she's in the car on the stakeout, mentions that she was driving for Uber really yeah. recently, which, of course, to the audience is suggesting this is either her first mission or her early mission, and that she isn't exactly the She is sort of a new, contracted person uh, who doesn't have much experience. But the line is sort of so seemingly weird that Kavinsky doesn't believe her. So that was a attempt that I made to tell the audience something about her character, but not tell Kaczynski because he doesn't believe her. right? Um, And he reasonably doesn't because how could he believe that someone who was driving for Uber six months ago is somehow on this mission with him? But then we have a more subtle example in uh, about a minute or two later, when Reese is giving Manson and Bundy the weapons, and he has trouble unzipping the bag. For me, that is a little hint that I'm giving to the audience that like this guy is not smooth and that this team isn't smooth. This isn't Ethan Hunt, this isn't Jack Bauer, this isn't most action movies where they're all experts, everything is smooth and easy. Um, I needed to convey to the audience some of those moments so you can start to understand things about these characters even if it's in a subtle way. And by the time you get to the plane and they start opening up to one another, which is one of my favorite scenes, you don't feel like it's the first time you're getting to know these characters. You actually feel like Mm -hmm. you have a little bit of insight into who they are, and this is the first and natural moment where they're actually going to open up. Because before this, they had no reason to. They were tight-lipped, they were told to be tight-lipped, but they're now in such a weird predicament that they've decided, it can't hurt for us to talk about ourselves and kind of get to know one another and figure out you know who we're in the shit with, as I think Reese says. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was challenging. How do you develop characters that aren't allowed to talk about themselves? Um, but I think we did a good job, and I think that our actors are also likable in their various roles, especially our heroes. That even if you aren't being told so much information about them, the actors themselves are you know getting a lot of audience buy-in.
0: Oh, you are you are along for the ride. I mean, and I have to commend you. Your casting of Reese Caro as Reese, I got—he adds moments of lightness because you can't just have this intensity build and build and build. You gotta have a release somewhere, and he gives us that in some respects with his "fuck it, let's go for it," and that works so well because it also helps bond Miller, Kavinsky, and Reese, and even Harris. And I love, you know, your casting is really well done there with our heroes, with Dermot, with Jason, with Mel. And Barkhat. I got to say, I'm so thrilled because I remember Captain Phillips, he could barely speak any English. He's got some great dialogue here that really just breaks your heart and has you wondering, is he being set up? You really wonder. Your whole construct here with your casting, with your characters is great. And then you compound that. Your visual tonal bandwidth and your visual grammar is impeccable. What you and David have come up with visually, you keep us in. We've got icy bluish tones in the plane and in flashbacks to a point that make us feel everything's shrouded that there's a cloud over things. Things are, are not, we're not seeing everything. And then you counter that with the inky blue blacks and the shootouts pumped up with the heat of fire glow. We've got that final act with in Washington, D.C. that suddenly it's bright, 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 GE white light bulb bright. And the camera, it your frame goes out wider. It's like, okay, the blinders are off. Everyone now sees Olsen for who he is. And this is so beautifully constructed, Grant. I'm curious, what were your thoughts in working with David to come up with this visual grammar with very specific framing of the camera and using really vacillating between important close-ups, your mids, and then very few wide-wides? Because I think it just works so well with this whole cloak-and-dagger cat-and-mouse game that's happening.
1: Uh, I appreciate it. Um, yeah, you know, for us, one of the uh, many theses of this movie was that despite that it is an action movie, there's no reason why we can't make it really visually thoughtful. Uh, we, You know, we felt that a lot of movies in this genre are just prioritizing the cast and the action and really nothing else. And that, you know... People nowadays are seemingly only putting much visual or, you know, score uh, kind of thought into Sundance type of movies. And I said, there's no reason why we can't do that here. And that then allowed us to really explore our characters and our settings in a much more thoughtful and elevated way than I think a lot of our counterparts do. And but that starts with sort of our different characters um, and thinking about different visual or audio themes that each of them bring um for us the airplane was a really good way to do that
2: Mm -hmm. because
1: i think a lot of movies on a private plane would have had a sort of typical airplane color you know sort of that just a stale sort of white and sort of a sterile Mm -hmm. feeling to it um and i felt that because these three are our heroes that kind of cloaking them in this blue was a very natural thing for me to do to identify them uh sort of versus when our heroes are meeting individually with Olsen, if you look very closely, I've actually put a little bit of red into Mel's pupil. Mm -hmm. Um, It's very subtle, but that for me, and I I didn't want to hit the audience over the head that he's going to be a villain, but I did want to differentiate our heroes from him and give a sort of certain thought to each color with each character. And then we go to the black site where everything's really muddy. Mm And dark and um, I, it's all about individualizing and the score is similar where our heroes have a bit of a theme that plays three to five times and derivations of it play a few times. But then our black Side doesn't really have a thematic score. It has more sort of atmospheric
2: score similar to Sicario. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have our Olsen
1: interviews, which don't really have
2: much of anything right. at all. And, with score and that's all purposeful you know i think that the actors are great the action is great the script is
1: great but if you're able to bring all the tools of filmmaking to elevate each aspect of your story why not like you know the tools are there we we had these great cameras we had a great gapper we had a great cinematographer we have a great composer and a great editor let's bring all those things to the fore uh, and, you know, accentuate all the things I'm trying to get across and, you know, this was the first movie that I have contemplated that I really thought handheld was the way to go um, usually I am someone who likes the more static sort of painting-like framework and here I just thought, no, we have to feel like we're in this with these guys
2: mm-hmm. and
1: nothing is settled and therefore everything should be handheld but you know, when we're in the interviews with Olsen, the camera's more locked off. Yeah. And I did want to sort of differentiate it, but the big difference in those scenes is that while the cameras are pretty locked off, for the most part, we're quite dirty when we're on uh, the over-the-shoulder of Olsen facing at our heroes, and it sort of gives us that born ultimatum feel. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the different sort of framework for each plot line, and there are all these fun things you can do to get the point across that you're trying to get across and you know and makes the experience very active and not stale and i think that a lot of tv and movies we're seeing these days have a lot of clean lives or a lot of clean mediums on characters i find it very stale and i think that in a movie like this that's so character driven you do want to put the camera right up to the characters and you do want to have a lot of dirties and you want to have and things that just don't look clean mm-hmm. don't even look as clean as you wanted them to be and just, it gives it that sort of natural grounded feeling and that was really important
0: here. The way you've done this and, and the distinction, you're actually creating some great visual motifs with the camera which you don't see too often each character we have a different kind of visual motif similar to score motifs the hero motif or the individual, what we hear, you know, when Olsen is around versus what we hear when Miller, Kavinsky, and and Reese are around. I love the thought that you put into this for the visuals because the metaphor, when you get that dirtier look, that says a lot. It says a lot, and because the dirtier look comes from the the over-the-shoulder behind Olsen, looking at these candidates individually you get a sense of something's off balance with him something about this interview is off balance it's not all that it seems to be and you follow this through and with your big set pieces we want to be in that firefight we want to be boots on the ground with them and you make us feel that way from beginning to end grant you have it your thought is so evident in this film, with what you have done cinematically, and I just love it. Really appreciate it, thank you so much. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm excited uh, that you
2: felt that way about it, and I certainly hope that other people do, because you've hit the nail on the head about
0: our intention. I am curious, with your score, because as you said, very, whenever we've got Olsen on screen, it's almost non-existent. I wasn't even cognizant of score, when he's interviewing people, you're so focused on what he's saying. And in typical Mel Gibson fashion, the expressiveness of his eyes and the, you know, a little bit of Martin Riggs comes in there. A lot of Stonebanks from Expendables 3 comes in there. He can be all over the map and you're trying to, to figure out what he's doing. But so you're, I wasn't even cognizant of score during those particular moments. But what? But for the rest of the film, because there are some very specific motifs happening, what were you looking for musically from your composer, from Kylie Norton?
1: Yeah, you know, when we're on Mel, um, there's not too many moments of score, and I sort of analogize that to Harry Potter. When the Dementors come, everything starts getting really frozen, like mm-hmm. the windows on the uh, train and the sort of terrain and similarly... I think Mel's character sort of has that
2: effect where he sort of makes it so a score can't exist uh, because his presence is so cold. Yeah. <laughs> um
1: But when we, you know, Kylie and I talked about this, I said off the bat that I wanted our heroes to have a thematic score, something that I think just isn't as common nowadays. Um, and I cited Lauren Balfe, especially Mission Impossible Fallout, um, where the whole score is basically a derivation of the Mission Impossible theme song, you know, that
2: was rebranded by Lauren. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the actual theme song itself only plays three times. But you feel like it's playing the whole time because there's just these
1: little riffs on it. Um, And I said I wanted him to create a really interesting theme for our heroes, but to tease our audience with it a bunch and really only play it, you know, three or four times and sort of play riffs on it the rest. And then, you know, for our black site, I definitely did say the more atmospheric, the kind of Sicario type of score, which is a lot more common nowadays, you know, the sort of mood, feel score versus something that actually is sort of lyrical, you know, has a sort of uh, melodic uh, aspect to it. Um, And that's just a really good way to um, separate the two timelines. And there's no way that the black site would have a thematic score it's just it's so atmospheric and moody that i just wanted to lean into something kind of cold and distant um whereas the heroes you know they are i do view them more analogous to the mo of a like, mission impossible fallout versus a sicario um and i did need to individualize the two plot lines and mm-hmm. make sure there weren't any redundancies and as you said Just like Reese keeps things very fresh with his humor and his wit. Mm -hmm. Similarly, I couldn't have the two plot lines be too similar to one another. Otherwise, it would get failed.
0: Right. On every level, Grant, this is just, I just love this film. And I love what you put into it and your execution. I am curious, though. This is your second feature directorial. You've got a lot of production, producing under your belt. And it shows in this film, the considerations of a produ- of a boots-on-the-ground producer, it shows with your direction of this film and in this script. You're not wasting time or, or wasting money, uh, so to speak. But I'm curious, what did you, as a filmmaker, as a director, take away from this film, from this production, and learn about yourself as a director that you can take forward into future directorial efforts, hopefully a sequel.
1: Yeah, um, I I think that um, I've always been a visual storyteller, and I think, as I said earlier, that that has sort of been relegated in a lot of uh, places in the industry to sort of indie and art house movies, and I just didn't feel that that was true, and I felt that I could take my visual storytelling into a genre like this, Mm -hmm. and this was the a great example of sort of proving that hypothesis correct, because I was able to do that, and one of the things I learned along the way is that the better you get at storytelling with pure visuals, um, sort of pure cinema like Hitchcock would sort of uh, advocate for, the dialogue becomes a little bit less necessary. Um, You know, my other work is a little bit more talk-heavy, inspired by Whit Filman and Aaron Sorkin and David Mamet, but the more I've made movies, the more I've realized that you don't actually need as much dialogue as you might think, that you can convey a lot of things with just the image, Mm -hmm. and I was able to learn here even more um, than I thought going in just how much you can convey with with the visual image versus accompanying it with dialogue or accompanying it with voiceover, like a lot of movies do, um, which I, I really can't stand. So, I um, going into the next film, whether it's an action movie or whether it's a comedy or whatever it is, knowing that something that is just visual itself can convey the message. It could also be funny, you know. Some of the great comedic bits out there,
2: you know, in all of history. If you think about like Chaplin were purely visual. That's visual it.
1: Audio. And, um, and I think that was a huge lesson learned here was just how far you can take it. And I think a scene that people resonate, um, that resonates with people in this film is when Visser is in the forest towards the end of the movie trying to find Harris and kill Harris that scene. I I wrote the scene from scratch. I very much planned that one out, maybe as a special darling of mine, because Mm -hmm. I thought that just we had had so much action in the 10 minutes before that, we needed a breath. And I very much thought of a horror film and that sort of stalker POV and how in a movie like Halloween, stalker POV, nothing's being said. Right. Just, you know, just we see long lens, we see, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis on a terrace, or on a porch, you know, there's just, you're conveying so much to the audience with a very simple image, which is clearly the camera's behind the bushes, and we're looking at Jamie Lee Curtis from a distance. And that tells us so much, and I similarly wanted to convey that in that final scene there between Visser and Harris. And really, almost nothing is said, but, and that creates tension, but we also sort of know. What I'm trying to say by having it just filming it the way I filmed it. And that was awesome to learn those lessons and see when it works, see when it didn't work. and uh, I think that's the biggest thing I'll carry through to the next.
0: And I'm glad you mentioned that scene because that scene truly, you make the most of negative space. it plays to your advantage with tension. The camera dutches up and at Harris really, really well done. And again, it's like using negative space here, which is something a lot of directors forget to use. And you you just hit everything. Hit the nail on the head with it all, Grant.
1: I really
0: appreciate it. Thank you so much. That's oh, Grant. That. Thank you so so much. I hope we get to talk again in the future, maybe for a sequel. Uh but I'll talk to you about any film you make. Let me tell you, I just love your cinematic voice. I really do. And I can't wait for the next one.
2: Thank
1: you. I, I can't I can't either. Um, I really hope to hopefully film something uh, this year. That'd be nice. We'll, if, uh, we'll see. I'd be, I'd be very happy if I did.
0: And that was Grant Johnson, director of Agent Game. And for more on Agent Game, go to BehindTheLensOnline.net And my exclusive interview with Katie Cassidy, it can be found there right now. And Katie has a really interesting perspective on gun safety on sets and working with action and armament in Agent Game. Uh, It all goes back to her many years on Arrow. Uh, And it's a perspective that we haven't heard from too many people about the gun safety on set issues. Um, And I just think it's... It's a great interview with Katie, and she's so much fun. So check that out. Well, right now, we're going to switch gears, and we're going to welcome writer, director, actor, editor, Tim McGrath to the show. Hi, Tim.
3: Hello. How are you?
0: I'm fine. How are you?
3: I'm doing well, thank you. Thank you for having me on.
0: I am thrilled to have you on. What a film. What a film oh, you, you have made, Tim. Uh, I appreciate that.
3: Thank you.
0: This is—I didn't know what to expect. And mm-hmm. number one, it's short. I mean, it's a full film, mm-hmm. but it's short. I was surprised, um, and by the—I didn't realize that it was over when it was over. It went by so quickly. Um, oh. But it's so compelling. For all of the listeners out there, you are a survivor of the Aurora, Colorado, uh, the Dark Knight Rises massacre. Let's call it what it is. Uh, And you have now put together this film, which you actually, this was shot, what, a few years ago in 2017 or 2018?
3: Yeah, that's right. And then uh, we held it for COVID. There was just too much going on.
0: Yeah. And I think that was a smart move to hold it and release now. And so I I don't forget to let people know the film is releasing this Wednesday, April 20th, which is the anniversary of the Columbine school massacre. Um, That's right. a, A very poignant date, to be sure. But what I find really, what saddens me is I'm sure when you were making this film, when you thought about it already since what you went through, um, we had so many more, so many more massacres happening. Um, And just this past weekend, there were three more major Mm -hmm. shootings around the country on Easter weekend, a holy weekend Mm -hmm. that they're supposed to be promoting peace. Easter and Passover. Um, from your perspective, Tim, do you think this is ever going to end? And I think, and this ties into part of what you talk about in in your film, Surviving Theater Nine, because you bring up a very important subject of mental health education. Not just mental health, but education. And finding out the root cause, and you know, hopefully, putting an end to the root cause of of what's prompting individuals to go off the rails um, with these heinous acts. But you know, do you ever do you see an end coming to this at some point?
3: Well, yeah, that was uh, that was an important point for me to try and share with the film. Um, you know, it started, I was I was having a hard time myself in law school in California. And the only kind of teachings that were helping me were from a woman uh, who was a teacher as well. And she was also a Columbine survivor. Um, and so I would have to get on a plane and go. I mean, we could do concessions, but there was like a group in Colorado. Um, and the... I was a mess and the incredible strength and inspiration of the other people in the room, the other survivors, um, that was what I tried to share and build into this film and culminating with really kind of the mental education aspect of it is how I thought of it, um, which yes, health was important and all of the techniques, but then really understanding why we're doing what we're doing, like why I would have to, you know, go into this panic shake um, and there's a lot of different uh, learning, uh, learning exercises you can do to help with that. So for the film, I wanted to show mainly focus uh, you know, on the survivors and, and then kind of bring in this concept uh, as well and really mm-hmm. just kind of show it and show what we went through and show how we overcame it. And hopefully that can help other survivors and then, you know, maybe even other people who are so upset they want to take a violent act. Uh, That's that's what I was trying to do with the film. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, I think you have have succeeded with that, Tim. And I love the way you have constructed the film. Uh, You focus Mm -hmm. on, you play yourself in the film. Uh, mm-hmm. you have you have the character I didn't
3: want to at first but I was talking to
0: well I think you know well playing yourself did you find it cathartic at all for you?
3: after the fact yes Yes. I think I just had dinner with Kim Woodruff a couple of months ago and I said it was such a gift to be able to spend this much time you know in a working environment with her teachings mm-hmm. because as the stresses of production and whatever else came up, uh, delays, all that stuff. Um, it Kim always said that she's like the the shooting trauma is the first one, and then once you get through that, you'll start having to face your other traumas. Yeah. And so that's really what was coming up, and it, so it became very cathartic. Yes, and and I hope that I made it short, which is it's fifty minutes five zero, mm-hmm. um, which is sort of you know technically a feature length, but my sister's an educator and she. I made it with that in mind to be able to play it in classrooms because she said we need, we need a, something to start a discussion. Mm-hmm. So the, the concepts that I bring up and the stories and the, the strength of these incredible people who I was trying to share, um, hopefully that can start a discussion You know wherever you watch it.
0: Well, and the stories that you've chosen to weave into the film, number one, I love how you've broken this down into before and after so we see everybody before happy, and of course, you've got incredible, an incredible cast here, tackling these roles. Fun. I mean, you what? Number one, did you go pilfer the entire General Hospital cast to get them? <laughs> it
3: was it was just a word of mouth casting. Like we were just trying <laughs> to do something to help, and then people read the script and you know i hadn't directed anything before so they were like well what cinematographer are you using and you know really trying but but i fortunately people responded very strongly to the script and my production team was incredible so um yeah they, everyone just kind of showed up and that was it was such a gift and yeah Corbin Bernsen Stacey Rostano, Donnell Turner William DeGraff I mean Chelsea Crisp
0: you know Robert Bernie Palmer Watkins then you get yes. and yes. Richard Richard Fancy. Um, I mean, just yeah.
2: so,
0: I, when I saw the the list of actors in here, I was like, "Oh my God!" That's yeah. that spoke volumes to me just seeing the actors that came on board for this project. Uh, because they're incredible. not they yeah. don't take just anything. They don't need to. Mm-hmm. And the fact that William no. and the fact that William DeVry came on board, because William will is very on social media, he is very cognizant and very passionate about these massacres that keep happening. Um, he was just he was just posting again this morning about the weekend and what happened this weekend. So uh, to see these, he did
3: such a phenomenal job. We only had him for like an hour in between. He drove down to Orange County, and wow. we had him for just a minute. And we he, I think he, we did three takes, and every single one there wasn't a dry eye in the room. And I, I was like, we got it, you know. Thank you, sir. Like, my well,
0: gosh. and what's so beautiful about his segments, um, because he plays the father to. Um, Luke Colombero who plays Jacob Garrett and Jacob and everybody heard about this after the shooting he was a young boy who stood up instead of ducking he stood up and Mm -hmm. probably were it not for his brother pulling him down on the ground he would not be with us today Um, so you've got Jacob's story in there and Will plays the character Jacob his father and In order to make his son's life better, who can't deal with school, who goes to school and gets called, you know, shooter boy and, you know, just you can't deal with it. And teachers going, you okay? You all right? Why are you sitting in here alone? And a father that is willing to uproot his career, his family. And I mean, that is one of the most powerful segments in this film. Similarly with Richard Fancy who plays your grandfather, okay. uh, giving sage advice about mm-hmm. fate and school and paths of destiny. Um, just really incredible. You've got Chelsea Crisp, who plays this a surviving sibling. Um, and that really hits you at the beginning of this film, when you've got you know this young girl we don't know who she is she's going you know down her driveway and her neighbor is hanging over the fence and and starts telling her well i know you're not upset that your brother's gone you didn't like him anyway <laughs> it's like you hit us over the head with this you got our attention immediately to him
3: it was it was shocking that the the responses that people have. And then after some time with it, you realize that they're just trying to process their own shock and they project it. And so it, yeah, my first, I was so angry at some of the responses at first. And then again, you get to sit with Kim Woodruff's teachings and you're like, Oh, that's they're handling it in their own way. And it's not correct, but you know, that's part of how they're doing it right now. And so I put that in, because I wanted to show, like, the gut instincts uh, aren't always correct. You
2: know, maybe
3: take a beat.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that, you kick it off with the first after sequence with that, and it's. I was just like, that blew my mind, Tim. You got my attention immediately. Anybody who sees this film, in that moment, you will have... 120% of their attention. You are you will not look away when you see with that scene you won't look away. Um you know, I'm curious how you decided on yourself and Kim and a little bit of Kim's story, uh Jacob's story and a couple how did you decide on the stories on the survivor stories to include and work with?
3: Well, Initially, I just wanted to make the movie about Kim Woodruff um, because she has a fascinating story in her own right. Yeah. Um, you know, she was friends with the Combine shooters. They walked up to the table and saw her and just turned the gun and shot everyone else at the table. And it, it, the fact that she was able to develop such an incredible mental system to process that and then to share it with us. I was like, that's what I really wanted to share because, like I said, I was in California, and I, if, they were giving me, like, textbooks and pamphlets, and I was like, if I could just watch something yeah. online, that would be so much better. Um, and so as I was coming back to class, we, we just started chatting, and I said, you know, would you mind, um, I would love to just interview and see what everyone's different experience is because there was a, the class was dedicated and focused. It wasn't like a talk therapy. It was mm-hmm. a Tai Chi Um, practice so there wasn't we weren't sharing that much of our individual paths and so I I just set up a little camera there's the interviews are online like
2: I saw them
0: I watched them yeah
2: did you yes yeah
0: I watched them and I watched your little the actors also the featurette with them talking about coming on board
3: oh wow yeah so I, when I did those initial interviews, like their stories were so profound and so, yeah, shocking, you know, the behavior of people. And I, and so I, I just started to kind of put it together in my spare time. And then that's, it. I I don't know, it just, that was the only way it really could have worked Mm -hmm. (laughs) for me. Um, So that's, that's how we got there. But it was, you know, Megan and Jacob, you know, we, we, Jacob, was kind of doing slam poetry afterwards and he's this gifted musician and so while I was interviewing him he was playing and he could do the Rubik's Cube he was just this awesome kid and then I and I you know with his mom the whole time I was like you know how is this for him and she said well I think you know facing this and going through this is very helpful for him so I was like awesome I'm happy to be part of that however I could and then we took his his slam poetry and turned it into lyrics for the original song mm-hmm. uh, which kind of takes this out at the end and and you know my son some my composer and dylan chambers is this awesome musician he sent me a voice memo like first take was actually what we used oh wow um, it was just it was so beautiful yeah
0: well you know the way you've broken this down into the before and after and i have to say um your cinematographer brian jansen uh, and his shooting work right I love it and what I what you do is you keep the visual tone here you really exhibit a command of filmmaking in that you keep the visual tone light and bright so that mm-hmm. it's the only time anything gets dark is when you do these recreate some uh, uh, just a few seconds recreation of the shootings. In the theater. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, your sound design and inserting, you know, the sound of, of you know, repeated gunfire. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that jars you. But you keep your visuals very light. You're in in rooms that have lots of windows. that sun is coming through. You've got the great scene between Megan and her brother who was killed. Um, and they're on a trail, and of course, you did have to throw in comedy, where he makes her mm-hmm. laugh so hard that she pees her pants. Um, That's right. You know, it, it it's natural. Well, it is all
3: real stories. I didn't I didn't make up any of it. Like they, these were all stories that that you know they shared on camera, and uh, you know, knowing what this was. So yeah, you have you have to show the what it was before to understand the impact. And, yeah, and I. You know everything is colorado is such a beautiful place and everything is is really just gorgeous out there and and you know we were i was there's a place in the middle of denver called wash park and i was just hanging out there with my cousin there's like tango lessons for the senior center going on by the lake and we're like oh what you know the movie's opening let's get on our phones and get tickets and so you know it's 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 just that jarring and that happenstance. And so I wanted to convey that. And Brian Jansen is a gift of a, of a cinematographer, my gosh, and, I mean, and a good friend.
0: It's I incredible. mean, it, I just love, I love what the two of you did in keeping it visually light so that we can really absorb that contrast and the impact um, of the juxtaposition of the before and the after. It really makes it that much more impactful? Um, Thank you. Yeah. When I was
3: first talking about it, there was like, you know, typical Hollywood producers wanting to make it very much something that I didn't want to make it. You know, offering money and this kind of stuff to make it uh, just a, a piece I didn't want to do. And so... I was so grateful for the team that came together to make it what it is now.
0: It's a, this is a very personal story. It's an intimate story, and you retain that intimacy. You've got excellent production values with your cinematography, with the editing, um, with the music. You've got top-notch actors. So your production values are high. It looks good. It sounds good. It doesn't look like something that somebody did in their garage for $1.50. Um, no. You have all of the cinematic elements here, Tim. Um, and for my money, this belies this being your first film. Um, but you've done an excellent job with this, but more importantly, in using the cinematic tools to tell this story, because this is such an important story that needs to be told. Um, Thank you. You know, how difficult was it for you? Did you ever debate at all about including the actual theater scenes, recreations, reenactments?
3: Yeah, that's what I was just referencing. That it wasn't a debate for me, but it was offered okay. for lots of money. And so that that was, but it, it took about four seconds to say no. Um, that wasn't at, ever what I thought was of value. Um, I wanted Kim's teachings accessible. Um, Kim was definitely on board for that. Um, and so, yeah, that's we we made what was the intent from the first you know page I wrote.
0: Now, were you? How hard was that for you to actually shoot? those theater scenes?
3: <laughs> those were a day. I went out the back and did some of the techniques. Um, that was a really tough day. That was especially, you know, like I was, I was standing in to get the lighting right and all that sort of stuff. And he was kind of sitting there and the old, uh, you know, the old kind of adrenaline starts going and all of that. Um, so yeah, that was very challenging. And I just wanted to do correctly all the way through. Mm -hmm. And so that was, I was just sort of heightened for the entire filming process. Um, We were filming on weekends. I was working kind of full time at the time. And um, yeah, so it was, that was, it was always intense. We were always, always up against deadlines and all that stuff. So that, and that day was personally very challenging, but um, I just would put it aside for what I hoped the movie could do. And fortunately in some of the screenings uh, that's been spoken, you know, the audience, uh, they got what, I, what my intention was, and that's the most rewarding thing
0: of this. Well, you know, I mean, I have the utmost respect for you for making this film um, and for the way you have done it because you put yourself into a precarious emotional situation um, by including these things, by reliving some of these moments on film. And not everybody can do that, Tim. And, you know, I applaud you. And you do. You have my utmost respect for Thank you. putting yeah. yourself in this It comes up a position. little bit every,
3: every time I get ready to talk about it, <laughs> even even for this interview and the rest of them. I'm like, oh, boy. But uh, I think the the intention is what I focus on.
0: But, well, you know, let's, let's lighten it up about this film. Um, <laughs> y- you learned a new skill set. You learned how to make a movie. <laughs> sure did (laughs) is is this now a career path that you that you want to go on as a filmmaker is this one of these paths that grandpa is talking about in the film
3: (laughs) well i was i was able to get some screenwriting jobs um kind of concurrently with with this film and and definitely with post and so that's been a lot of fun i got to do the um, the follow-up to Ten Things I Hate About You—it was like this unofficial sequel. Um, they had started filming it and then then stopped, and then they said, "You know, we've got all this footage. Can you incorporate it?" So I got to be very silly, you know, kind of writing homage to this movie and and then trying to make it, you know, wholly new and all that. So it was it was a good contrast. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, and then there's a there's a couple other scripts that I've been working on that have gotten some interest, and in they're wholly different, um, and so that's been a lot of fun.
0: Now, yeah. do you see yourself stepping back into the director's chair at some point?
3: I would do it. I'm very particular with my vision, just kind of by default. Mm-hmm. So I would I would certainly do it again um, under the right scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, fortunately it turned out well, so I can, I can say that. Um, but, yeah, I think, like you were talking about, all the elements, um, they, they're all cohesive for me when I'm writing when mm-hmm. I'm screenwriting so it's the you know the tenor of the pace of conversation and the look and the lighting I, all of that's at, at once on the page for me and so I've written for hire and kind of given it away um, but there's a few that I'm I'm tinkering with that I would, <laughs> I would direct
0: You always gotta have those few little gems in your pocket just for you
3: <laughs> Yeah there are specific looks and I can already see them. So in that sense, if, if yeah, if the funding comes along happily, I'd direct that.
0: Yeah. now I've got I have to ask. Well, first of all, speaking of funding, was it difficult to get the funding for surviving theater nine? Um, it
3: was it was starts and stops a little bit. Like we turned down some funding, like I said, on, right. on a few different occasions for not the right funding. Um, yeah, it was. You know the the message of this is, is correct. So I think that's what, um, everybody involved responded to, you know, it's about the survivors. It's about their strength. It's about sharing, um, unusual, not unusual enough, but unusual situations. Um, and how do you cope with that? So all of, all of the pieces, it's just amazing. You know how they, like you said, the cast, the funding, the production team, like, Oh my gosh, so you you just kind of keep going, <laughs> like you, you can't slow down to say, oh my god, this is you know you just like, okay let's let's get the job done.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now I have because you include this in the film, your experience at law school with three of the nastiest looking administrators I think I have ever seen. Um, did you ever finish law school?
3: I did not finish law school, um, and those administrators left that same semester. As well, so, they should. You know, just- I, I love the school I you know I really love it they they like like Grandpa says in the film they made those guys made some bad calls um, so I don't want to dismerge the institution whatsoever um, and no I did not finish law school I might at some point I would like to um, but I've been just kind of busy since then um, but like I said the school was wonderful and they put in actually because of my situation there they they put in all sorts of new mental health and i call it mental education um protocols um as a result of what i was sharing the people that are still there they're lovely so um they've made a lot of changes so i have to give them kudos
0: now see that and if nothing else would come of this the fact that changes were implemented because of your situation that you know you can't uh, you can't top that when, because of what you went through, when change is made for the better, for the good, there's nothing yeah. better than that, Tim.
3: Yeah, it, I was really glad to hear it, I have to say.
0: So now, I know you were on the Fest Circuit before COVID with this. You know, have you had any school screenings or anything like that yet before the release on Wednesday?
3: Uh, we're doing a, a benefit screening for the Rebels Project, and the Rebels Project there are is a group of Columbine survivors, and they formed a support group, which is now nationwide. I think they've even gone to Europe um, in response to the Aurora shooting. And so on on Sunday, we'll be doing uh, we'll be doing a screening, you know, as as a benefit screening there. Um, yeah, right. We did. I just did Tribeca, and then there was like a Connecticut Post Festival, mm-hmm. and then. Um, we had all of these, you know, inquiries about screening it at the colleges and that sort of stuff. And I'd I'd be open to that again, obviously, now that people are back in school, um, because I think it is valuable as a talking piece. Um, like there's not curse words, it's not graphic, but it's still, you know, compelling and all of that. So I think it's, I think it's right to be a talking point.
0: And, you know, sadly, because of the fact that these massacres didn't end with Aurora, it didn't end with Columbine, yeah. didn't end with Aurora, didn't end with Sandy Hook, didn't end with Pulse. Um, they're just It's just not ending. And the more that people's eyes can be opened up, I think the better. Mm-hmm. And this is an incredible, incredible way for that to happen, Tim.
3: Thank you. Yeah, someone called it a love letter to anyone who's been through trauma, and I was like, that's... That's what I was going for. I just wanted to let everybody know, like, you're not alone in a basement bathroom. <laughs> like, losing yourself.
0: <laughs> so are you working on anything else right now or just focusing on getting the film out there and maybe getting it into, you know, now into these colleges and into high schools, uh, even elementary schools, because <laughs> the elementary school kids are getting targeted. So.
2: hmm
3: yeah, they had Parkland um, Survivors of Tribeca, and it was, uh, yeah, it's it's shocking every time. Like, you just, you don't, I, I don't have words for it every time, so I just try and go back to, you know, where where we can give some hope and strength. Um, and yeah, I'm, as far as I'm working on, I'm going notes over a, a pilot I've written, which is, uh, it's just, it's very different, uh, not based on a true story, so it, it's fun and, and light and uh, cool and intense have been told, so uh, we'll we'll see where that
0: goes. Oh, well, Tim, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. I can't thank you enough for making this film. Um, thank you. This is something that everybody needs to see, and that they can see this Wednesday. You're going to be on all the plat- mm-hmm. all the platforms, the digital platforms, the VOD platforms. Um, it, the film will be available everywhere. And that's right.
3: Amazon, iTunes, Google Play on Wednesday the 20th.
0: All the usual suspects. Um, well, Tim, this has been a real privilege to have you on the show today. I can't thank you enough. I hope you'll come back again one day.
3: Uh, me too. That would be lovely. Thank you. We'll get to work <laughs> and
0: sell something. You know, make something.
3: <laughs> we'll do. We'll do. After, uh, we'll, we'll get to work after the benefit screening. How about that? I okay. think that
0: that's a fair. That's fair. Oh, Tim, okay. thank you so much. And awesome. I look... Thank
3: you for having me on. I really appreciate it. I
0: look forward to the next time.
3: Awesome. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Tim. Bye-bye. All right. All right. Bye-bye. And that was Tim McGrath, writer, director, and now actor, surviving Theater 9. He is one of the survivors of the Aurora, Colorado, Dark Knight Rises movie theater shooting, this is a powerful documentary. Uh, not documentary. It's a, it's a, it feels like a documentary at times because the stories are true. Um, it's out this Wednesday on all the platforms. I can't encourage you enough to see it. And it really gives us perspectives that we haven't seen before. Because these are the true stories of survivors uh, of these mass mass of these massacres. All right, well, that is all the time we have today. So until next time, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.